Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Expert Series podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Stacy, the Executive Director of BCLT. And today we're here to talk about what types of legal issues we should be thinking about when it comes to the internet. And today we have Ian Ballin from Greenberg with us. Uh, many of you may know Ian. Uh, he is one of the world's leading experts when it comes to internet law. Uh, and probably that's not an overstatement. He may be the world's leading expert. Uh, if he's not the leading expert, at least in the top three or four. Um, but what we know about Ian is that he's got an incredibly broad practice. He's the uh, global intellectual property and technology practice group lead at Greenberg, which is an enormous group. But what Ian brings to us is this breadth of knowledge about what we should be thinking about across internet law as a whole. So no matter what particular area you're in, Ian should have uh, a little bit of input that you need to, to know today. So Ian, uh, with that, I wanted to say thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. And thank you for that very uh, generous introduction. You're very, you're too kind. Well, uh, tell your friends, because other people that litigated against me for years have never said that about me. So. <laughs> Well, well, Ian, we get a, I wanted to, to, to kind of showcase this breadth today and run through a, a grab bag of, of questions that people should be, should be thinking about. So some of these don't necessarily relate to the question before, um, but let's just, just run through a few things. So one of the, the, the issues that I've been looking at is, is the CASE Act and uh, voluntary copyright arbitration. So, you know, Tell us what you think about the impact on that. Should we be looking at it, studying it, worrying about it? Uh, I, I think it's really important for companies to, to prepare for it because it is very much an under the radar issue. Uh, everyone talks about how case act arbitration is voluntary. And so I think a lot of companies really aren't paying much attention because if it's voluntary, you can think about it when you need to. But it's only voluntary if you don't opt out. So this is, I think, one of the places where companies are going to run into trouble, which is if you are duly served with a case act complaint, you have 60 days to opt out. Otherwise, it's going to be binding. Uh, and uh, I think it is important for companies to determine whether they want to be involved in case act proceedings or don't. Um, there are three types of claims that can be brought. One is infringement. One is non-infringement, essentially like declaratory relief. And, and one is for sanctions for misrepresentation in connection with a notification or counter notification under Section 512F of the DMCA. So I think we will see uh, a lot of complaints, particularly from individual copyright owners. As we know, the largest number of copyright cases filed in the federal system these days are brought by individual photographers, uh, many of whom uh, are referred to as copyright trolls. Uh, and for, for, for many, the opportunity to uh, have a proceeding where they don't need counsel and where you can recover up to $30,000 in damages and up to $5,000 in attorney's fees if you do have an attorney, uh, you know, will, will seem appealing. Um, and similarly, you know, for a number of companies, there are, you know, the, there are going to be instances where they really aren't going to want to have that kind of proceeding and opting out, you know, may result in the, in the, in the dispute going away because the complainant may not choose to file a federal court suit. But the other place where I think companies really need to pay attention is for inter internet in intermediaries, for service providers, because first of all, service providers themselves and users 
can bring 512F proceedings. So I think there's going to be a lot more uh, claims for sanctions for material misrepresentations in connection with notifications and counter notifications under the DMCA. And I think it will also be a situation where uh, copyright owners may want to use the CASE Act as a relatively inexpensive way to get material offline in instances where a user submits a counter notification. Because under the counter notification procedures, uh, if a user submits a counter notification, the material will go back online unless the copyright owner files suit. And this may provide a cheaper mechanism for a copyright owner uh, to, to simply file a case act complaint to keep the material offline and then get a more inexpensive adjudication. So Ian, how will we see this progress over, over the first 12 months to, to get enough data to actually make decisions? What should people be looking for? Well, I think, I think you need to, to uh, look at the rules and consider what type of cases for your law department uh, would you ever want to, to, you know, to bring. And, and I gave some examples. You know, a copyright owner might prefer to bring a case act claim, um, you know, rather than filing a lawsuit if it's just a dispute with an individual, um, you know, over a particular piece of content in response to a counter notification. For most companies, they they you know may not want to 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 be in uh, case act proceedings at all. Uh, the copyright office has until June of 2022 to implement uh, this arbitration. They've indicated that that it will go live by June at the latest, so it could come online sooner. Uh, but I do think companies need to think about it. And it's very important whoever is monitoring um, notices that are sent to. Uh, resident agents for process uh, for service of process to be very attentive to these claims because a lot of times companies get letters and other things sent to resident agents and they don't process them the way they would a complaint in a lawsuit which is time sensitive and here you have 60 days to opt out so on day 61 um, you're going to be bound by this proceeding and you may not want that to be uh, the case. Well, as we, we move forward to, to a couple of different issues, uh, class actions seem to be in the news a lot, especially you know, CCPA class actions. Uh, but kind of just more broadly, when you look at all cybersecurity and privacy class action litigation, what's going on with those these days? Sure. You know, I, I defend um, a lot of data privacy, ad tech, and cybersecurity breach class action suits. Uh, and there are, there are a lot of developments in, in, in both areas. In the cybersecurity breach area, you know, one of them is the Supreme Court's decision in TransUnion v. Ramirez, which again tightens the standards for standing uh, in federal court uh, lawsuits. And actually, uh, in that case, the Supreme Court narrowed the construction of Clapper, which was an earlier standing case. There's presently a fairly um, pronounced circuit split on the issue of standing in cybersecurity breach cases where there isn't uh, an out-of-pocket monetary loss. And some circuits will allow standing uh, just based on you know, time and inconvenience, and other circuits will not and have a stricter standard, which I think is closer to, to what the, the, the current more conservative U.S. Supreme Court would, uh, would adopt. Um, so TransUnion, again, continues to push the needle, uh, you know, in that direction, making it, you know, more difficult for plaintiffs 
to bring claims in federal court. Um, and that's generally helpful for companies because uh, plaintiff's counsel often don't want to bring uh, lawsuits where there's really no monetary harm in state court. Their end game is trying to survive a motion to dismiss in some fashion so they can try to get a settlement on a nationwide basis. And a state court action, uh, if it's a cybersecurity breach case and if there's no claim uh, for statutory damages, you know, they're less interesting to, to, to bring. Um, for, for claims that are based on statutory damages, uh, plaintiff's lawyers may be just as happy to be in state court, such as, for example, a cybersecurity breach uh, putative class action suit under the CCPA, or as of January 1, 2023, under the CPRA. Um, and for example, also in the privacy area under the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. Um, in fact, in federal court in Illinois now, we see the, um, the anomalous situation of defendants remove, removing cases to federal court and, it, and, and the plaintiffs are the ones arguing there's no Article III standing and the defendants are the ones arguing that there is standing. So at least uh, in, in the Illinois Biometric Information Act cases where there is the potential for large statutory damage awards and where plaintiffs very much want to be in state court, we see, um, you know, we see that, uh, uh, that back and forth uh, tussle. Um, in the ad tech area, there have been uh, a large number of lawsuits filed in the past year uh, involving replay uh, software various different technologies that will replay actions on a website, uh, essentially optimization software to help companies figure out uh, where content uh, should be more prominent if people are repeatedly clicking multiple links to get to particular content, it probably should be more easily accessed or uh, highlighting dead links or other uh, errors on the website. But some um, innovative uh, uh, plaintiffs' counsel uh, concluded that this that uh, these kind of programs uh, violated wiretap laws under uh, California, Florida, and some other state laws. And so there have been uh, a large number of those brought um, in California and in Florida. And and now the courts are scaling those back. I've successfully resolved a number of them, and I have one that I transferred from. Uh, California to uh, to Delaware, uh, and we're, we're waiting for a ruling on it. But to a, to a large extent, that's very typical of what we've seen in the data privacy area over the last 12 years, where there'll be a new issue, a new piece of technology, a new type of software, where the class action lawyers or their investigators will uh, see some angle that they can try to exploit under a state or federal law. There will be a bunch of cases filed, then a bunch of copycat cases, uh, and then courts will will scale things back. So that's been, you know, a big uh, a big development. Also in the cybersecurity area, one thing that I've I've uh, noticed is that there are fewer MDL actions. Um, you know, uh, ten years ago, maybe maybe even six years ago, it was more common if there was a, a cybersecurity breach that many lawsuits would be filed and then they would be consolidated. You know, when I represented one of the um, 
phone manufacturers in the carrier IQ class action litigation. There were 70 separate lawsuits that were filed around the country before they were consolidated uh, in front of one judge in, uh, in the Northern District of California. And, and today you don't see uh, as many cases filed and uh, MDL certification may not always be the right, uh, the right approach. I had a case in 2021 uh, where we, uh, my client was sued in seven different lawsuits in California and Texas. And I successfully opposed MDL certification and uh, you know, convinced the, the multi-district litigation panel not to consolidate these seven cases uh, in San Diego. Uh, and then we were successful one by one in getting the California cases moved to Texas. Uh, and that is uh, one of the interesting aspects of CCPA litigation, frankly, is there have been a lot of cases filed. Not all of them are in California. Uh, they, they do need to be brought by California residents. You can't be a resident of another state to bring a claim under the CCPA, uh, but those cases can be litigated anywhere. And um, uh, there are a number of ways to chip away at those kind of claims. Um, some of the elements of the statute are very fact intensive and can only be resolved at trial. And honestly, I think this has been very helpful. I found this a very helpful tool in convincing plaintiffs to either not bring or drop or, or settle on um, you know, lower dollar numbers than one might expect CCPA claims. Because even though a plaintiff potentially can recover up to $700 uh, per alleged violation, there are a lot of hoops that a plaintiff needs to jump through, including showing that, that, uh, that the breach was a result of a violation of the duty to implement and maintain reasonable security procedures and practices. And for a plaintiff to show that, that's a hard thing to do on summary judgment. They really would have to go all the way to trial. But there are actually many hoops. Uh, uh, in my treatise, I, I list six basic elements of a CCPA claim. Uh, there are some cases that have dismissed CCPA claims. I, I've defended a number of CCPA claims that really aren't CCPA claims. The plaintiffs want them to be CCPA claims because uh, they then get press coverage. But uh, there actually are a lot of elements of the statute. And plaintiffs also make mistakes. You have to submit, uh, you, have to you have to give a defendant a, um, an opportunity to cure with a 30-day advance notice to get damages. Plaintiffs gum that up. Frankly, sometimes defendants gum that up. I, I took over a case where a lawyer concluded that it wasn't worth responding. And so they just never responded to that 30-day letter. And I, I think that's a tactical mistake because there's almost always something you can say, and then it 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 off it almost always will become a fact issue in the litigation. But it um, you know as you mentioned at the outset, there's a lot going on in the data privacy and cybersecurity breach area. Uh, cybersecurity breach uh, defense is becoming a little bit more commoditized these days. A lot of the insurance companies are pushing things down. Uh, data privacy cases are still you know very unique, very. Um, very uh, complicated. And of course, there also are very complex privilege issues uh, in cybersecurity breach cases. When there's a breach, uh, you know, locking that any investigation down and making sure it's privileged is quite complicated because uh, there's a split in the circuits on work product protection. And there are um, there's some unfavorable attorney client rules there. I, I have some some angles to keep things confidential, but it is something that's very hotly litigated in, uh, 
uh, in literally almost every cybersecurity breach that I've, I've had in the last year, ever since a, a 2020 ruling uh, out of the Eastern District of uh, Virginia, uh, compelling production of a forensic report. Since that time, in every single cybersecurity breach case, the class action lawyers litigate privilege issues, litigate privilege logs. It's, uh, it's de rigueur these days. Well, and it seems maybe adding to this level of complexity and what people need to know is new states coming online with, with new rules and always a little tweak from the, the, the state right before them. Nobody's exactly going to do what anybody else did. What's the old saying? Uh, you put four lawyers in a room, you get five opinions. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, tell me, yeah, tell us about Virginia, Colorado, and what you expect out of that. Yeah, no, that's very insightful. That is the problem is you have too many smart lawyers as state legislators. And so they always look at the law passed by the last legislature and just, you know, change a few words here or there. Um, and you saw that. I mean, you see that really in the security breach notification laws where there's just every year there's another new minor variation. It, uh, it really is terrible for those of us who have to update treatises. Uh, updating the security breach notification state laws is always the most tedious and torturous each year, year in and year out. But you, you reference two very important laws, which actually are not cookie cutter laws, the, the Colorado and Virginia laws. Virginia looked at the CPRA, which takes effect in California, January 1, 2023, and is essentially an updated version of the CCPA, and also looked at the GDPR and came up with something you know, similar, but a little bit different. And so this is what Virginia did. And then Colorado, to a large extent, followed on, uh, on Virginia and, and followed the Virginia model with a few tweaks here or there. But what those laws do is they adopt the European concepts of data processors and data controllers, which is, again, going to be more comfortable for people, you know, who operate in that environment. It's a different approach than what you have under the CPRA. Um, and uh, so they have their laws that take effect. Uh, and at the margin, you know, particularly for those involved in internet advertising, you know, each of these new laws raise, you know, new complexities. Uh, the good thing that I will say about the Virginia and the Colorado laws, uh, there is no private right of action. Uh, enforcement is solely by the attorney general. And, you know, it may sound strange for a litigator to say it's a good thing. We don't have more litigation, but I, uh, you know, I always uh, try to uh, think of my client's best interests. And so I'm talking from a public policy perspective. Uh, uh, I think it is, you know, better to have only regulatory enforcement. Uh, and the enforcement will be by the uh, attorney general of each state. In California, we now have the CPPA, which is the FTC-like uh, regulatory body that under the CPRA will be not just engaged in rulemaking, but also engaged in enforcement action. So you've got a government agency, independent agency with an independent budget uh, that is going to enforce the CPRA the way the FTC enforces uh, uh, COPPA or Gramm-Leach-Bliley. And so you're more likely to have a lot more regulation, a lot more uh, litigation. Neither Virginia nor uh, Colorado uh, have set up a separate agency. Uh, there, there will be regulations under Virginia, but again, there's no agency. 
All of this, of course, really cries out for a federal law that would preempt state laws and, uh, and uh, not allow a private cause of action. Um, whether we will get such a law uh, remains to be seen. Uh, you know, I lived in Washington, D.C. for six years, which was long enough to convince me that I should never predict what, uh, what Congress can or will do. Uh, it seems to be having a difficult time getting almost anything passed. But we're, 2022 is an election year, and privacy is one of those free issues that uh, make almost any incumbent look good running for re-election, saying they did something to protect privacy. So maybe, but the open issues are, you know, will it preempt state law or will it just be another layer of regulation? And will it, uh, uh, will it preempt any private cause of action or will it just uh, give class action litigators even more to work with? Um, and, uh, you know, all of those are to be determined. So, so, Ian, I'm willing to go out on a scary limb here and say that nothing's going to change before summer. <laughs> uh, I think uh, I think that that uh, that is uh, quite reasonable. Although, you know, the conventional wisdom used to be that uh, anything that's going to get done needs to get done by June before an election year. Now, I think it's September. Uh, but, uh, you know, who knows? Well, well Ian, I'm going to take all of that and, and put it in a into a single sector to talk about, and it's a broad term, AI, machine learning, however you wanna, wanna view it. But all of these laws on, on data management directly impact the ability to build products, to develop new products. I mean, we, we saw Clearview take a, a beating in Illinois. Um, what, do you, what do you think people should be considering and watching either policy-wise or law-wise if, if they're looking at AI and machine learning tools going forward? Yeah, well, um, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, you know, one thing that, that, that is a little bit under the radar is the Federal Trade Commission is likely to engage in rulemaking in 2022, actually as early as February 2022. Uh, there was a little notice, notice uh, that was published uh, towards the end of the year in 2021, indicating uh, an intention to, uh, to begin rulemaking. And the rulemaking is likely to focus more on the privacy side than, um, than, than data ownership, uh, and probably more specifically on issues of discrimination. Uh, you know, the fact that uh, that an algorithm is only as good as the test data used to train it. And there have been some fairly uh, famous cases where, for example, in terms of uh, uh, predicting creditworthiness, uh, where, where algorithms uh, reinforced racial stereotypes because the data reflected, you know, green, green lining in loans and things of that nature. And so the fact that for decades, um, uh, people who were not white were discriminated against, particularly uh, African-Americans, uh, the, uh, the data reflected that. And then the AI was trained to, uh, to, to, to aggravate that. Uh, and, and obviously those, you know, people who, who work as AI developers are well aware of these problems, but it sounds like the FTC is going to be issuing some rulemaking around that. Uh, in the ownership area, um, uh, you know, who owns the data and can it be freely used? Um, in addition to the privacy issues, um, there are really these smorgasbord of 
remedies available for uh, for people who own the data, for database owners, uh, that companies that that want to legitimately uh, access and use data for for uh, for training purposes have to consider. Um, and it really, it, it, you know, it really is a smorgasbord. It's a Copyright Act, uh, Lanham Act, common law, trespass, unfair competition, uh, anti-circumvention provisions of the DMCA. It, it, you know, there are many, many different kinds of cases that can, can be applied. I've, uh, uh, I've litigated uh, scraping cases going back to the 90s. And um, you know, I always tell clients, you really have to look at the facts very, very carefully because um, uh, you know, with the smorgasbord of remedies, for example, under the anti-circumvention provisions of the DMCA, uh, if someone accesses publicly available information uh, uh, that is freely available, you know, maybe not even copyrighted, uh, if they do it the wrong way, uh, there's a circuit split. In some circuits, it still could be an anti-circumvention uh, violation. Um, you know, copyright obviously protects an entire database, but if only individual facts are copied, we know under FICE, facts are not protectable, uh, but there can be copyright protection for a compilation. So, you know, companies need to look at it in terms of you know, what are the high dollar risks? That's probably the Copyright Act because of uh, statutory damages, the anti-circumvention provisions and the copyright management information provisions of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Uh, uh, you know, and then there are the claims that are most likely to succeed. Uh, breach of contract, uh, you know, if there's any terms of use violation, for example, um, interference with contract, many of those other kinds of claims. But it's... Um, you know, it really is, uh, you know, is a complicated thing for companies to think through if they're either trying to protect their data or trying to access data so that they can, you know, better train their, um, uh, their algorithms. Um, and of course, in the privacy area, the European Union is already, um, you know, already uh, trying to actively regulate through the GDPR what can be done with information. So these are issues not just to consider in the United States, but internationally. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I've seen in a lot of instances when companies are dealing with, with use of data that it does often involve companies in multiple countries. So... Ian, if I, if I take you your litigator hat off for a minute and turn you into a corporate lawyer uh, on these issues of, of data portability, if, if we're looking at acquiring, partnering with, doing joint ventures with companies that are AI, ML-based uh, companies, big data sets, how do you know that your, your partner or your acquisition target did things correctly? What kind of diligence items should you be thinking about so you don't end up in, in Ian's office hiring a litigator in six months? <laughs> uh, you know, that's actually a great question. And I have advised some clients in connection with acquisitions uh, because the, the, you know, the range of issues is so broad that it really does, it is helpful to have sort of the practical view of how these things actually play out in litigation because uh, you know, it can be tempting to look at something and say, well, this is what copyright law provides, so there's no issue. But, you know, Wayne, as you know, as a litigator, I mean, you know, there's no issue, but you still may need to spend two years before you win on summary judgment on the no issue. And so right. the question is, you know, is that is that money you want as a holdback, you know, and, and you know, things, things of that nature. But, 
yeah, you really have to, if you're doing due diligence, you really have to go sort of methodically. In, in, in the chapter in my treatise on database protection, screen scraping, and data portability for AI, um, I have a checklist of issues you know, to look at. And, and if any of those are issues relate to the particular company under consideration, you do need to drill down. And sometimes you just don't know. I mean, the reality is, uh, and as a litigator, this is something I've always observed, you know, in litigation, you know, as you know, Wayne, from, from, from litigating, uh, in discovery, you know, you, you, you can look at almost anything you want, as, uh, unless a, uh, you know, unless the other side can get a protective order to, you know, to block it, but you have very broad discovery and you don't have that when you are doing due diligence. You know, you have reps and warranties. Uh, you can only look under the hood to some extent. One of the things that I've always been struck by when I'm uh, talking to companies that are looking at acquisitions is, you know, you just don't know what employees have said in email, in Slack, in uh, text and voicemail and other things that come out in litigation that may be quite different from what they're telling you in the context of a transaction. So this is definitely not an area to skip over in, in for due diligence. Well, it sounds like that is its own own program um, to dig into to this a little bit deeper in the future. Um, well, Ian, I want to thank you for for joining us today. Um, obviously, we can only only identify the topics, um, can't get too deeply into that many, uh, but these, this is a great list to, for people to start with. So thank you. No, it's my pleasure. And uh, you know, if any of your listeners are interested, they should feel free to reach out to me by email or other means. And I'm happy to send them uh, some free excerpts from my treatise on any of the topics we discussed today. Perfect. Well, thank you, Ian.